Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Paul, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to get to, uh, get to talk about God's Word with you this morning. Um, as you saw from our video, uh, we're going to be in John chapter 10, and so I invite you, uh, if you have your Bibles, pull them out, open them up, or turn them on, uh, and navigate over towards uh, John chapter 10. We're going to be reading out of the ESV version this morning, uh, and I want to make mention, if you don't have a Bible with you and you'd like to follow along with a hard copy, uh, you can look in the racks of the chairs in front of you, you may have to ask somebody to pass one down to you, uh, but we have these in the racks. We're going to be uh, on page number 896, uh, and I do want to say that if you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can call your very own. Please take that one as a gift from us to you. We'll be blessed by you having it, and we know you'll be blessed by your time reading in it. Um, any, any time that you open up, uh, most every version, uh, when you get to John chapter 10, you're going to see the heading there uh, of a good shepherd. The imagery of the Good Shepherd uh, has been uh, one in Christendom, uh, in history, through art and through literature, uh, even to the earliest of forms, uh, especially within Christian art. Uh, here is actually a picture um, about 100 and 150 years-ish after uh, the death of Christ in a catacomb of, of uh, Italy, and we find this picture of the Good Shepherd. Um, uh, probably around, somewhere around 300 AD in Italy, another catacomb, a mosaic, we see this picture. It's not just uh, Italy, but also in early African traditions, we see the Good Shepherd showing up in art, as well in ancient Russia, and traditions for long from Russia, we see the Good Shepherd showing up. And then not to leave out, we also see it in a German tradition. Just kidding. Oh, that was a good one. I sent that to a friend of mine, and, uh, and he sent back, oh, I get it, it's because he's walking on water. And I was like, no, wait, oh, wait. I actually didn't catch that when I sent it to him, and I was like, oh, I see what you did there. But in chapter 10, what we're going to find is we're going to find another I am statement of Jesus. Specifically, we're going to find two of them. Uh, this morning, we're going to focus in on the first one. Next week, we're going to focus in on the specific one where he proclaims to be the good shepherd. Uh, the one that we're going to focus in on this morning is where he calls himself uh, the door. I am the door or I am the gate. Uh, both statements are found after an uh, explanation of a figure of speech. John in chapter 6 uses this term, figure of speech, not necessarily parable, um, but he wants to make specific that this is a figure of speech, meaning that there's going to be uh, multiple aspects, not just one overarching theme, but multiple aspects of the story in which we want to draw meaning. Um, and in the start of chapter 10, uh, where we have this figure of speech and these two I am statements, we simply can break it down into three parts. The first part being verses 1 through 6, where Jesus gives this description about the sheep. This is what we saw in the video and what we'll read from the text, uh, a, a, a simple, simple, relatable illustration that his original hearers uh, would have all known and been familiar with. Um, but yet, in verse 6, we see that many doesn't, don't understand what he is saying, uh, so he unpacks that figure of speech in the next two uh, sections, in verses 7 through 10, where he explains that is, in fact, he told that story to point to the fact that he is the door in that story, and then in 11 through 18, where he explains that he is the good shepherd. Again, we'll be focusing on the door, and we'll leave the Good Shepherd to next week, where Chris will be bringing the message. Um, but before we jump in and we, uh, and we read this section, the beginning of chapter 10, I want to take a technical aside to set up some context here, um, because actually some scholars debate over this section here in the beginning of 10 of whether we should be reading this uh, as a continuation of our conversation from last week in chapter 9. 
Uh, it it kind of flows that way, and there's a lot of similar uh, linguistic elements, there's a lot of similar thematic elements, and you might say it might be a very natural thing uh, to tag this story about uh, the good shepherd and uh, these bad shepherds and the sheep and the sheepfold as a continuation of the conversation of chapter 9. Now, some other scholars want to say, no, 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 this is actually a, a, a separation, uh, and chapter 10, the beginning of chapter 10, should all be understood. Um, looking forward to the rest of chapter 10, uh, where specifically John, in verse 22, um, makes a, a break and an introduction of another feast. Remember that when we took those two weeks to, to talk about all the feasts that occur through the book of John, John often uses the setting of the feast to highlight the teachings of Jesus. And in chapter 2, he breaks from uh, the previous section where all of the conversation was about the Feast of Booths uh, or the uh, Feast of Tabernacles uh, to now a, a new setting, a new feast, which is the Feast of Dedication or Hanukkah as we covered. And so a lot of scholars say, no, 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 this section here in 10 is actually uh, another, uh, not connected with nine. It's actually all in the setting of chapter 10 and having to do with the Feast of Hanukkah. Uh, and this would also have some credence or make sense because it, it seems like the audience in the second half of the chapter is supposed to be the same audience in the first half of the chapter. Yet these feasts are three months apart. Uh, so they would say, well, no, this audience is a new audience three months later with this new feast. Now, whether or not there's a, a literal connection in a time frame here, uh, I, I, I don't think it necessarily matters because I think what John gives us through the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit is he gives us certainly a literary connection, a literary unity through this. He presents this story, I think, in the middle uh, to hearken, yes, back to chapter 9 as well as to set the stage so that we can look forward to the rest of chapter 10. I think that it is, uh, as preparation for what we'll continue to study throughout chapter 10, I think it is important to consider this passage in light of the Feast of Dedications, um, because we do know from, uh, again, our study through the feast that Hanukkah um, came from an, a, a celebration that celebrated a, a period in the intertestamental times, um, specifically the Maccabean, Maccabean Revolt, uh, in which the Greeks had come in uh, and began to Hellenize or, or influence with Greek culture the Jewish, uh, the Jewish and Judean uh, countryside. And what they were doing there is they were um, trying to uh, tear down their uh, own Judaism in form of religions and assimilate them into their um, pantheistic uh, Greek understanding. So there was things that they would do that defiled the temple, uh, things that they would come in and interrupt, the various ceremonies and elements uh, to come in. And to do that, uh, they actually would enlist um, um, fault, false or faulty uh, religious teachers of the times, um, priests who would basically abandon their faith and say, no, I'd rather choose this, uh, this pagan influence, this Hellenistic influence, so that I can profit and I can gain um, whatever whatever light or prestige or money or whatever it is what, that they were trying to uh, gain. And so a group of uh, true Jews uh, saw this disruption in the Jewish uh, priesthood. Uh, and so they, under the leader uh, Judas Maccabean, uh, Maccabeus, uh, decided to go in and to take back, to conquer the temple and rededicate it to themselves. And we think, well, why would, why would that whole scenario play important into this conversation about a good shepherd? Um, well, in, throughout the Old Testament, we see uh, the good shepherd used uh, oftentimes, most oftenly, used to describe the Lord. Oftentimes, also, we see the bad shepherd 
in contrast to the Lord's leading, the bad shepherd presented uh, to talk about, specifically to condemn, uh, false or poor leaders of Israel. So in the Jewish faith, they have an old tradition of this concept of a good shepherd and a bad shepherd. And so here, leading up into the Feast of, of, uh, Feast of Dedication, or Hanukkah, it would be important for, these, for this audience to be hearkening back on what they're about to celebrate and to remember this story, that there are those that are the good shepherd, and thus we know Jesus is proclaiming of himself, and then there are those who are the bad shepherds, just like uh, the false priests who were, the, who were welcoming in and profiting off of the Hellenistic influence. And so I do think that it will, this, this section will help us as we continue chapter 10. At the same time, I think it helps us to continue our conversation from chapter 9. Because again, what we just covered last week uh, was the story of the blind man who was healed by Jesus. Uh, and Jesus heals this blind man, uh, and then that blind man, after washing his eyes and regaining his sight, goes to the synagogue, uh, and all the Jews begin to ask him, is this the man who is healed? He finds himself uh, standing before the Pharisees, remember, rather probably frustratingly so, as they are trying to corner him uh, specifically about this person of Jesus, uh, and he's telling them, no, 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 this man Jesus is true, and he did heal me. Uh, and so what is the Pharisees' response to him? Well, they exile him. And they kick him out. They, in essence, remove him from the Jewish fold. And they say, you now can't worship God here. You have to worship on your own. Well, where does Jesus pick back up on this? We find Jesus entering back into the scene, chasing after and going and intentionally finding that man who does not now have a place of worship and gives him the opportunity to put faith in him as the son of God. In essence, he's giving him an opportunity to worship rightly again, the good shepherd going and seeking the sheep who has been kicked out of the fold of Judaism and now welcomed into the flock of God. Warren Wearsby puts it, um, matter of fact, as this, that I decided to put it on the screen. He says, the Pharisees threw the beggar out of the synagogue, but Jesus led him out of Judaism and into the flock of God. So I think here, this, this section of scripture that we are going to be considering this morning both continues that conversation, pulls from the story so far in chapter nine, and will be paramount as we continue our conversation in weeks to come uh, through chapter 10. So what I wanna do now is I wanna, I wanna read together the entirety of the text, even though we've seen it once in video, I wanna remind ourselves of God's word once again uh, and to um, write ourselves in proper posture of, again, to uh, hopefully align us in physical actions the way that we wanna align our hearts in response to God. I'm gonna invite you to stand uh, as we read God's word together. Starting in verse one of chapter 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all is his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of the stranger. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So again, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Hear the words of the Lord. Y'all may be seated.
So again, here we have this imagery of a sheepfold. This simple, uh, simplicity is the essence of this illustration, this simple, familiar figure uh, in the life of uh, Judaism or the Judean countryside. Um, Even in our industrial, not even an agrarian society, even our industrial society today uh, can look at the simplicity of this passage and draw and relate to a lot of the same conclusions. And so if it is that much familiar to us, how much more familiar would it have been to the original audience? Um, To kind of touch on that uh, a little bit more, to write our minds to the uh, correct understanding of what is going on, the setting here is presented for us as this communal pen, the sheepfold. Uh, we see here's a picture of a, um, uh, a, a modern recreation of a sheepfold in Israel, uh, but essentially it would be just a stoned, uh, stacked wall, uh, oftentimes probably with thorns, thistles, or brambles stacked on top of that wall all the way around with only one entry point. Uh, so only one way in and one way out. And this was a communal sheepfold, and this would be found either right outside the cities or right inside the cities. And what would happen is the shepherds who had been out tending their flocks on the hillsides, uh, allowing them to graze and to find the nourishment, at the end of the day, um, under the threat of dark, would pull them together and lead them back in towards the city where he, the shepherd, is going to find rest. And he would take them to this communal sheepfold, and he would let them go in, uh, and they would go in with his herd and with a bunch, bunch of other shepherds' herds, and they would all gather in together in the sheephold. And then a, uh, a hireling uh, or a um, vice shepherd would be sitting at that gate, uh, manning the entrance and the exit of the gate. And so when the shepherd would then, after a night's sleep, would come back, uh, and after this um, under-shepherd has stayed up all night watching the gate, the shepherd would return, uh, would, would gain access rightly through the gate, through the under-shepherd who recognized him, uh, and he would go in and amidst, amongst all the other sheep from all the other herbs, herds, he would cry out or call out with his specific call, or here he would start calling his sheep by name, and they would hear his voice, recognize him as shepherd, and they would follow him out as he leads. And so this is the scenario that is playing out for us. But in this scenario, in this uh, figure of speech that Jesus gives, he highlights a couple characters. The first character we see, the major character number one, is the thief and the robber. We see it in in the very first verse of John 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. The words thief uh, in Greek, kleptis, stresses this idea of trickery, um, and this word robber in Greek, lestis, stresses this connotation of violence. So we have this trickery and this violence amongst this, this thief and this robber who's not coming in the right way through the gate, but instead is trying to climb over the wall. Um, he's clearly coming in here uh, for nefarious reasons. He's clearly coming in here to profit on him, for himself. Uh, and he here is presented to be in stark contrast to our next character. Because our major character number two is this good shepherd. Well, even though Jesus hasn't spoken into this figure of speech yet and identified him as the good shepherd, we know he is the good shepherd because there's a couple elements that are present here. How do we know that he's a good shepherd? Look down in verse two. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads him out. You see, the first characteristic of a good shepherd here is that he enters in through the door. He has the approval of the gatekeeper. 
In fact, the gatekeeper here serves as our first kind of sub-character, minor character in our story. The gatekeeper uh, marks the authority or the rightness of the shepherd, the good shepherd. You see, he's the one who's saying, yes, that good shepherd, he has the authority to enter. He has the authority to leave. And so we see here that the good shepherd is a good shepherd because the gatekeeper proclaims it so and gives him entrance. He doesn't enter over the wall. Rather, he comes in through the gate. Also, second point that we know he's a good shepherd is because we know he calls his sheep by name. This is opposed to uh, the thief and the robber whose interest is to kill them and profit from them. You see, if you're going to kill them, you wouldn't bother with naming them. This is a shepherd who cares and loves for his flock, who's looking to lead them, who spends time with them, making sure that they have their provision and nourishment, uh, and he, thus he has named the sheep. I learned this from a roommate of mine in college who grew up on a farm. Uh, he tells the story, Eric tells the story of one time when he was um, preparing one of the um, uh, beef cattle uh, to be loaded up, to be taken to slaughter. He's with his dad, uh, and he asks his dad, hey, dad, why is it that we only name the dairy cattle, but yet we don't name the beef cattle? And his dad simply puts back to him, well, son, what are we doing right now with the beef cattle? Oh, I get it. Eric then understood why they named the dairy cattle and why they didn't name the beef cattle because the beef cattle went off to be slaughtered. They weren't going to be around for a long time. But it was the dairy cattle they wanted around a long time. They wanted to love. They wanted to keep healthy. And thus, they were the ones who named. Well, similarly here, the good shepherd calls out the sheep by name, showing us that he is a good shepherd looking for the sheep's well-being, wanting them to live rich and full lives, to be sheared and to have a purpose, to be a part of the flock, and yet the thief or the robber seeks none of that. He doesn't know them by name. He only wants to kill and to destroy and to profit from them. Well, then in verses four through five, we get the response of the shepherd, uh, or response of the sheep to this shepherd. Verse four, when he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee for him for they do not know the voice of a stranger. Again, Jesus doesn't identify himself here, but it is obvious to his hearers uh, that he here is, should be the, for us as readers, I should say, it is obvious that, uh, that this, is the, this is the good shepherd, this is the Lord, this is the one who the sheep should respond to because they hear and know his voice. They don't know this stranger. In fact, this is our sub-character number two, uh, the stranger shepherd that's here. The stranger shepherd, they, they flee from his voice. Now, don't get confused about these stranger shepherds. This isn't, this isn't some picture of any kind of church staff who's uh, leading you um, as a stranger shepherd, Lance. I originally thought about maybe tying that into he is the, the pastor of engagement, uh, thus engaging the strangers and welcoming them in. Uh, but then I remembered this picture and thought, no, it's too good. Um, but it isn't that, uh, and it's not just Lance, it's all of us, let's be honest. It isn't that you should focus on us as strange shepherds, as uh, the staff here, here on church. But really this uh, strange shepherd is, is in essence a summary again of the thief and robber. He's the same character just introduced to us in this sub-character. He is one that is not known by the flock. He is one uh, that the flock should not go and answer to his voice. Uh, he is one that uh, is not welcomed into the pen, uh, but rather finds false entry. So this is our simple summary. The sheep are in the pen, the unapproved thief, robber, strange shepherd uh, seeks access over the gate to profit, profit from the sheep's demise. The approved worthy shepherd gains access through the gate, seeking the best for the sheep. 
Thus the sheep who know him rightly follow him, and, those, uh, and not those seeking their harm. So it seems like a relatively simple message, right? It seems like even to us reading that, the, the pictures and the analogies would be rather clear. But in verse 6, we see that John says that this figure of speech Jesus used with them, uh, they did not understand what he was saying to them. Again, whether this is in reference to the blind Pharisees of chapter 9 or in the, this is reference to the new audience there at the Feast of Dedication, either way, what we see is a typical pattern of John that has emerged before we see repeated once again. Upon confusion of who Jesus is, Jesus continues explaining these simple things more directly and clearly, yet at the same time making them more offensive to those who want to reject him. And so let's look at the, the more direct and the more clear statements that Jesus makes, specifically of this first one where Jesus says, I am the door, I am the gateway. From this claim, I want to draw two points of application, and this will be our closing, time of, uh, closing application for us this morning. Uh, the first is that the gateway, I want to point out the gateway that Jesus is. Also, I want to highlight the guarantee that Jesus gives. Because within this proclamation of Jesus being the gate, uh, he claims upon himself that he is the gateway to salvation. And within that gateway, we find a guarantee that Jesus promises to all those who put faith in him. Looking down at verse 7, the gateway that Jesus is. Verse 7, so Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. And if anyone enters by me, he will be what? Saved. Salvation comes through Jesus and Jesus alone. At this time, I was, I was, my memory was harkened back to a world religion class that I had taken. Uh, and, in, and there's a uh, classic um, kind of story amongst world religions to so those who um, kind of draw on a metaphor to say that all, all roads really lead to God, no matter what choice you pick. And there's different versions of this illustration, but essentially, all of all the variations, it goes something like this. It's of the blind men and the elephant. And what happens is these blind men are walked up to this elephant, uh, and one man only gets to reach up to the underbelly of the element, and so his conclusion is that this animal is rather large. Yet one man is stuck on the backside and only gets to feel the tiny tail that is coming off, and his conclusion is this animal is small. Another man uh, feels the tusk and concludes this animal is hard, while yet another man feels the ears and concludes that this is a soft animal. One man feels the trunk and concludes this is no common animal. There's nothing like this animal. Yet the other one uh, feels the feet and concludes, yeah, this is a very normal and common animal. The, the, essentially, the application that comes from this, from, of those who think that uh, all, world, all religions really lead to the same God, say, well, yeah, yeah, even though these blind men came up with differing conclusions, they all came up with an aspect of truth, an aspect about a greater element, thus they are rightly finding a, a truth claim about an elephant. Um, thus, they would say, and no matter what religion they fall to, they would say that, yeah, well, they found an aspect of the, of the true God, so they thus also must be saved. Yet it isn't true that all religions lead to God because like this illustration where it breaks down is that these men only learned a part and they did not understand the whole. None of them really saw it for what it was. They didn't actually come to the conclusion that this animal is an elephant, and there's traits about this elephant that transcend not just one physical characteristic, a trunk, an ear, or a foot, but yet this element is an incorporation of it all. It is not simply enough to know the parts of Jesus. One can't uh, attain mentally that he is a moral 
uh, just a good moral teacher and that's it, find salvation. It isn't that you can't simply just say, well, I practice uh, love. I practice the moral teaching of love that Jesus says. So thus, because I practice love and love everybody, I'm saved. You can't say I'm saved by association. You can't say I give to a church or I attend regularly uh, or I even teach Sunday school. It isn't these things that save you. It's not these parts, um, but rather it is the whole. The truth is found about Jesus. Jesus is the gateway to salvation. He is the means of how men are saved. Jesus alone calls the sheep to himself, and we must enter into him. How do we enter into him? Well, we read that in previous chapters, John 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus is the gateway of salvation. So that, I think, is our first applicational truth for us this morning. If you never actually put your faith in Jesus as this gateway, if you've never confessed your sins and cried out to him to save you from your sins, uh, if you've never experienced what comes from the right relationship uh, from salvation, then today could be the day of salvation. Don't hesitate any longer. Uh, but put your faith in Jesus. But also from this uh, proclamation uh, that Jesus is the gateway, he also makes a statement here, a guarantee that Jesus gives. Verse nine again, I am the door. If anyone enters me, he will be saved. And what's the guarantee? And will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Salvation in Jesus leads to abundant life. Remember back to the purpose statement of the book of John. That's found in, in, in chapter 20. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Remember our three statements, Jesus, belief, and life. John wants to point to the witness of Jesus so that all those who hear must respond with belief, and when they respond in belief, then they are given right life. John here modifies what this right, right life looks like and calls it the abundant life. Not a life where, of one that leads to destruction, but one that is abundant. This harkens back to the psalmist, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. What's our application truth number two? Can you say that Jesus is all that you need? Is it that um, when we understand that Jesus has made a guarantee to us of abundant life, can we say that, yes, I truly believe that the life I live in Jesus is abundant, is all I need? I don't mean just, again, intellectually ascertaining to this fact that, yes, I believe that there is a good shepherd, and yes, I believe that it is possible to have an abundant life. I ask you now, if you put your faith in Jesus, can you say, yes, I truly believe that this life I have now in Jesus alone is abundant. I need nothing else. It isn't that it's Jesus plus my popularity. It isn't that it's Jesus plus my financial security. It isn't just Jesus plus my selfish desires. No, it is just Jesus alone. I confess to you, this was the challenging message for me uh, this week, rightly thinking on, uh, am I living the abundant life that Jesus has offered me? I think there's a key thing, and as we move into this time of invitation, and as you delve within with the Spirit self-evaluating, are you participating in this abundant life? Uh, we do know that there is a, as the psalmist says, there's a measure of when we know we're on the abundant life, and that measure is simply, are we walking down righteous paths?
Next week, we're going to consider this question more as we look to whose voice we are following uh, in consideration of Jesus' proclamation of the Good Shepherd. Uh, But today, I want us, as we close, to consider the gateway to salvation that Jesus is and the guarantee that he makes for us of abundant life. Let's close and pray. Father, it is an amazing thing, once again, that we get to call you Father. We only do because uh, you have sought us out as a good shepherd and us as lost sheep. Lord, if anyone does not know you as their good shepherd, I pray now that they come to realize their insufficiency on their own and they cry out to you to be the sufficient savior you want to be. For those who have put their faith in you, I pray that it is your mighty work through the Holy Spirit that draws in uh, and, and causes us to uh, rightly see and appreciate the abundant life in which you offer us. Challenge us and convict us in the ways that we are choosing anything less anything inferior, anything that we think we need to add into this equation to experience the life uh, that you ultimately have created us for. Thus, you ultimately can only give. Praise things in your name. Amen.